My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor at Midtown. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, before we get into our time of teaching, um, usually during this time we take time to pray for our uh, city in different neighborhoods, different industries, different things that we're involved in. Um, we're going to seek God's peace through prayer. Uh, but about once a month or every other month, we have an opportunity to do what we call membership vows. And this is an opportunity to bring before you people in our community that are committing themselves to be members um, of this community. And, and let me just explain this for a minute, because I know for some of us, uh, we grew up in churches that don't practice uh, membership. And uh, as many of you have pointed out, there's not a verse where you go in the Bible and it says, thou shalt become a member of a church. And so uh, membership is not, let me just say what it's not, it's not um, for elite Christians. It's not like the uh, varsity letter jacket, this is kind of an old analogy, but a varsity letter jacket equivalent for the church of like, these are the VIP people and the people who get special parking spaces. Um, membership is very much tied to <clears throat> commitment. And uh, I think we live in a, in a kind of a moment where the only commitment many of us make is not being committed to anything in particular. Um, and so it's easier for us to move in and out of spaces because we have choices and we have mobility and we kind of live in a moment where it's, uh, it's very individualistic, at least in America. And so when you look at the New Testament, there's almost 60 plus invitations to be something to one another, uh, which requires a certain safety and level of trust and a defined commitment to one another that says, I'm here for you. Uh, I'm not going to go anywhere when things get difficult. When we have conflict, I'm committed to reconciling that conflict. And uh, when you have uh, challenges, I'm going to be here. And that's really the heart of what membership is about, uh, is being tied to and loyal to and committed to a group of people. And how you express that culturally, whether you call it covenant membership like we do, or uh, in the early church, they practice it through a process they called the catechumenate, where they would baptize uh, folks into the community as a persecuted minority uh, once a year at Easter time. And you really didn't have to guess who was in and who was out because being a member of a church put a death sentence on you. Um, so we have other ways of doing that now that are a little bit less uh, threatening and are more culturally appropriate. But that's the heart of membership. So I want to invite Jamie up. Uh, Jamie, we have uh, one uh, woman here at this service and then two at the next service. Uh, I want to introduce Jamie to you. And then uh, uh, I forgot my handheld mic. Let me grab that. And then we'll ask Jamie to... Uh, to make a series of commitments, and then we'll pray over her and welcome her into this body. Uh, so would you please introduce yourself, tell us uh, your name, um, where you're from, what missional community you're a part of here at SOMA, and then what you do vocationally or for work. Yes, so my name is Jamie Vincent, and I'm actually from Portland, Oregon. So I moved here about three and a half years ago. I go to the Butler Tarkington MC that meets at the Lowry's, and Whoa. yes, <laughs> love you guys. And uh, for vocation, I'm the Rhythmic Program Coordinator for USA Gymnastics, which awesome. is what brought me here. Awesome. Thank you. Well, let me ask you these questions here, and if you uh, agree with these, if you would just say, I do, or I will, I'll, I'll lead you through that. So, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope except for his sovereign mercy? If so, say, I do. I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the Son of God? and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? If so, say I do. I do. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ, as becomes the follower of Christ? If so, say I do. I do. 
Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? If so, say I will. I will. And finally, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to pursue its purity and peace? If so, say I do. I do. Great. Well, as a church body, we have a responsibility as well to receive and to hold accountable and to uh, support in this work together, this partnership that we have uh, to support folks by praying for them, by uh, cheering for them as they live out their faith in every domain of uh, you know, their neighborhood and their industry. And so we have an opportunity just to, to bless and receive these folks into this body. And we start doing that by uh, kind of symbolically laying hands on uh, those who come into membership. And so I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just lift a hand. And we're going to pray for Jamie. And we're going to welcome her into this, uh, this church family. Father in heaven, we rejoice in receiving Jamie into this church family as a member, as one who is putting her yes on the table and committing herself to work for the good of this body. We know that we are an interdependent group, a body. It's what our name means, Soma. And God, we cannot function unless everyone is connected and committed and using their gifts to build up your church. So we, we welcome this opportunity to strengthen what is weak, what is insufficient, <clears throat> what is a deficit now, but will be made more whole through Jamie's ministry in this church. We receive her as a gift. We thank you for the supernatural work that you've been uh, working in her heart and life. To bring her to yourself is in itself a miracle. To uh, move in her heart, to join this body is miraculous, given kind of the, the cultural circumstances that we find ourselves in and how many are suspicious and cynical about uh, being a part of a church. So we thank you for that miracle. And we pray that you would bless her as she moves out into this community as a neighbor, as a friend, as a family member, uh, as a sister in Christ, um, and as a member of this body. God, we know that uh, truly and ultimately she belongs to you, and this is an entrustment of herself to you. And we join with you, Holy Spirit, in commissioning her and laying hands on her for the work that you have for her. She moves out into her neighborhood, into her work, um, into her relationships. God, would you equip her for every good work that you have for her? Would you help her to be a peacemaker? Would you help her to love mercy? Would you help her to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Would you help her to live into the vision of the kingdom that Jesus has called her to? And would you give her the strength to do her best? And where she falls short, would you give her grace to confess and to repent and to depend on you? Uh, because we know that in your weakness, in our weakness, um, you are glorified and made strong. And so, God, we pray uh, for uh, her and we receive her as a gift and as a blessing. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. Thank Let's you. welcome Jamie. All right. Well, as we get ready to move in, we're going to be moving around some stuff on the stage here. Um, but if you're, if you're new, so this is our time, and we teach every week from Scripture and if you're new, um, we've been in a series for the last month or so on uh, the spiritual discipline of uh, justice and, form and, and reconciliation. And so for the last month, we've been talking about uh, justice and reconciliation, what it, what it means in the Bible, uh, how it's tied to God's vision for the kingdom of God. Can we grab, um, somebody grab this, also this uh, pulpit right here so I can, oh, actually, no, sorry, I'm, I'm wrong. Sorry, stay where you're at. I'm going to invite some people up. We're going to talk first. Um, we've been talking about how it's a gospel issue. We've, we've talked about kind of the history of our city and where we've come from as a city. We spent last week lamenting together and crying out to God on behalf of both uh, our past sins as well as God's 
redemption that he's uh, seeking to bring in through his church in the future. And then this week we're going to uh, talk about what it looks like to actually do. This is the question that we get and we've gotten throughout the series is, what do we actually do? And we said, before we get to what we do, we have to talk about what kind of people we're becoming. And we have to learn to lament and sit in the pain and, and really embrace a new way of seeing the world, right, before we go out and, and do things for God. But this week we want to begin to move towards what we do. And so to help us in that conversation, I want to invite my friends up, Seth and Jackie Morales. Uh, Seth and Jackie are members of this church. Uh, Jackie serves on our advisory team. Uh, and they are executive leaders for uh, a company some of you may be familiar with called the Morales Group. And so we're really thankful to have them here, obviously. Um, here's one mic. Grab the other one. Really thankful to have them here this morning. And uh, I want to just spend some time fleshing this out for you so you can see what this looks like in the reality of life. And this is not just concrete, or it's not abstract, but it's something that's concrete and tangible. And so um, I would love for you guys just to say a little bit about how you got involved with the Morales Groups. It's something that's kind of defined your life in particular, but your all's lives as a family. How did you get involved with the Morales Group, and how does what you guys are doing, what you guys are currently doing, intersect with the work of justice and reconciliation? All right, I get the uh, I get that look a lot. Um, okay, so the short version is um, Morales Group uh, was founded by my father Tom and. My, my grandparents and my father were tomato migrant workers. They came up to Indiana back in the 1950s. And fast forward several years later, as my grandfather was passing from cancer, he really challenged my dad to give back and make a difference. And that one way of making a difference was providing a job. And so he thought, let's start this business. Let's reach out to those that are underserved, uh, that may come from a different community. Uh, other than rural Indiana or Indiana, and uh, let's, let's empower them with a job. And so Morales Group got started that way. I was employee number five. I jumped on board really early. I wasn't a founder. And uh, um, Jackie jumped on board about 11 and a half years um, prior to that. So you were 11 and a half years ago, is that right? Yeah, so. Um, and this is part of how you guys met, right? And actually got married. You yeah, I was, I was under I, the radar, right? Yeah, like, I was uh, probably going to hold off on that one. But, uh, <laughs> a little bit of an office romance, but uh, it worked out. Um, obviously, 10 years later, we've been married. Uh, but Jackie uh, and I were both in the sales field. So we we're out selling in the field and uh, we struck up a relationship. And fast forward two kids later and uh, uh, 10 years of marriage, we're, we're here. But the whole, the whole premise of Morales Group is to really lift up an underserved workforce, whether you're from an urban environment or you're from a different country. A lot of people who make 12 or $15 an hour uh, are looked down upon. And um, we feel like it's a platform, a mission field to give back and really try to empower these people and respectfully uh, serve them. So it's a platform uh, that we, we, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say, both of us come from families, um, blue-collar workforce families, and so we know what it's like to live from paycheck to paycheck, and, and so I think that also drives our, our passion to further serve this community, because, am I getting feedback? Yeah, sorry. You may want to, let, let me turn that one off. Let me just have you pass okay. one back and forth. So just turn Jackie's out there. There we go. Yeah. So I... I think for us, it, it's even more real um, because we have um, lived and breathed what, it, what it's like. And so when we can see that we're making an impact 
on a family and giving them an opportunity to um, to help their child get into a better school, to help serve their 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 family with with a warm meal every night, then we know that we're living out our mission even more. So the industry is technically your work is uh, light industrial staffing, right? Is that right? I yes. I have yes. no idea what I'm talking about, but that's what I've heard you guys say. <laughs> okay. So it's uh, it's logistics, manufacturing, warehousing. Uh, we do a lot of assembly. Um, general labor positions, but you know we we also try to move up and find other positions that we can offer to the workforce to bring them up to a better job. And it's and what you guys do is not just external; it's also internal. You guys hire quite a few minorities. I mean, you walk into the Morales Group offices on the west side, and uh, you won't see many white faces. Uh, <laughs> and so you guys intentionally hire. Nor will you see a lot of uh, European art, uh, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, just yes. even the like the whole way it's constructed is to build a culture internally, even to empower uh, uh, non-white folks. Absolutely. Right? So you know, because we are Hispanic-owned, we initially have this draw with the Latino community. We we really wanted to make sure that we were lifting up that community initially, and then as we started growing as a company, we became more globally focused and. We, uh, we thought it is so important for an individual, when you're recruiting for a position, to look the same as the person in front of you. And so we're intentional about hiring the Burmese um, individuals for recruiters. The, we have some individuals from Nigeria. We have a lot from Central and South America. And when they walk into our office, you'll see over 30 flags hanging. And the point of the flags is to uh, one, it was to represent everyone internally in our workforce, so they had just a piece of home and a piece of connection. Then as we started hiring, people would come in to find a job, and they would be like, where's my flag? And so you'll come in, and you'll see Syrian flags, Iraq flag. You'll see everything from, I mean, you name it. We have the flag hanging because we're employing that workforce, and we want them to have that connection when they walk through our doors. What are some of the opportunities and challenges that you guys have faced in this work, right? We know that in some ways this is an experiment. You're trying to figure out there's no manual or handbook for like how you do this, right? And so as Christians trying to bring your faith into this space, especially what are some of the things that you feel like are going well? And then what are some of the challenges? Because any, anytime you're in justice and reconciliation work, uh, there's, it's very messy, right? So yeah, I think we've been pretty intentional about um, we, we try to share our faith through our work. And, and the way we just play the game day to day. We don't necessarily broadcast it out on our website, uh, but we live it out through our core values and a lot of the missions work that we do. We've built 16 homes in Mexico and we take our teams down into Mexico to build these homes with Homes for Hope with YWAM and I have a sister who's a missionary down there. And so it's really impactful when you can kind of, um, kind of play your game and get people exposed to why we do what we do. No, I would say when you know five or six years ago, we decided um, we chained, we had two partners in the business, and it became just a family-owned business. And when we decided we're going to give this business to the Lord, this is His business, this is a kingdom business, and we are going to redo our entire values and make it biblically focused, be humble, be courageous, and be a light. And then we're going to live it out. We're going to really reiterate these values so people can see just God's work through actions with one another and um, through the external community. And I think when we did that, we're like, Lord, just use this as a platform so that we, so we can just show your light and all, all the works. And I think our business started shifting. 
Yeah, the one, one thing I'll just share. So Jackie and I will get up and share in front of groups like this. We, we did this a couple weeks ago in front of the Orr Fellowship. The one thing that I think is most um, notable that people want to talk to us about is our culture and how we got behind our core values. It's really interesting when we kind of made it about God and about why we do what we do, our, bis our business just exploded. And it was because we had those principles in, in, in writing and we had it lived out. And it was, I think it was really impactful. Yeah, so our mission is um, building better futures one story at a time. So it's all about just trying to build up the external workforce and our 160 full-time internal corporate team. So it's, it's, it's lived out, and it's been, a, I think, a key differentiator for us. What are some of the tensions you guys have had to walk in doing justice work and reconciling folks from different backgrounds? I mean, that sounds great, right, to put that up and talk about the story, but I'm sure internally there's a lot of tensions that you guys have to work through or challenges you have to think through in doing that. What are some of those things so, that others who are pursuing this would want to be aware of? So for us, you know, we, we do work with a large immigrant and refugee population. We're intentional about that community. We're intentional about the Hispanic community. And so there's naturally just a target, um, as Tom, Seth's father, my father-in-law, would say, there's just a target on our back because people have these assumptions that um, just what what what's out in the market right now it's a very heated topic and people will assume that these individuals aren't here um with with a desire to just get on their own two feet and start working and if that's anything but the truth they they just want to provide for their family you know we've we've mentored syrian families we've mentored um Burmese families, and they are so driven to not have any assistance once they come into this country. They will do anything to be able to provide for their family. And so I think there's misconceptions about their desire to jump into the workforce. That's good. Yeah, the only other thing I'd add is that I think um, when you've got, I, I say when you come into Morales Group, it's like 31 flavors. There's all these different flags, and we're kind of the United Nations of, of staffing. But there's, there's, Discrimination within you know those ranks, whether you come from a different background, whether you're from uh, Mexico and the South, or you're from a um, a more European uh, Spanish country. That, so there's some di discrimination between um, folks of that sort, or you're from Africa and there's different um, countries that that don't have the same, um, they just don't roll the same way. So there's there's some challenges there that we have to work through, and then there's language challenges and cultural challenges with our employers that we we staff up. A lot of times, they don't understand uh, what it's like to um, work with a certain workforce, so we try to bridge that gap. So it's, it's a challenge, but we've been, uh, I think, able to kind of overcome some of those, those hurdles over the past 16 years. How would you guys encourage, just as you think about the church in this space, it's such an important work as we think about really elevating human dignity and trying, I mean, just employment is something that we're all thinking about all the time, whether it's our own job or trying to help somebody find a job or we're transitioning jobs. I mean, this is, this is really at the nexus, in my opinion, of how we bring our faith together um, with our public witness. How would you encourage, and we have in this group, we have Orr Fellows, we have college students, we have uh, people pursuing masters, we have... Uh, mothers and fathers, we have grandparents. I mean, we have a, a great cross-section of our city represented in this room in some ways. And some of them have <clears throat> influenced their managers or business owners or aspiring uh, business owners or startup founder dreams or whatever. How would you encourage just people to think about getting started or taking some next steps um, in that process? One thought that I have is, so I think about um, 
right now a topic that's hot in, in, in the market, the community today is diversity and inclusion. And so when I think about diversity, I think about inviting somebody to the dance. And when I think about inclusion, I think about actually inviting them to dance and get on the dance floor. And so when I think about doing work and, and, and actually living out and, and being among uh, the folks that you're talking about, but you're not necessarily maybe walking the walk. And so one thing that we've done as a company, we sponsor different families that come from abroad uh, to serve them and lift them up. And that's one way I think um, you can actively kind of get engaged. I don't know, do you have any other thoughts on that? I think a big part of it is, is finding, we were talking about this this morning, is finding festivals, finding organizations that where um, we always say, you know, give of your time, talent, and treasure. So how can you give of all those three things in one of those organizations? Don't choose a ton, but like volunteer, get on the board, donate if you can. And I think those are some things when we started, when we, when we really said we're committed to these immigrant and refugee communities, you know, the first thing I did was get on a board with Exodus Refugee because I said, this is how I'm going to know how this works, how I can impact our company more and, and get us more involved. But then um, also, I think it just it gives you insight into the struggles as well. So. Is he a good dancer? He's talking about dancing. Oh, is, he, no. is he actually a dancer? No. Okay, I can break it down. Okay. I can break right. it down. Okay. All right. She can dance too. So. <laughs> Hey, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. And we're just so grateful to have you in this church. So grateful for the work that you've done. It's not perfect. And I know there are all kinds of flaws that you guys probably see and all kinds of ways that you know that you need to grow as a company uh, and as human beings and as Christians. But I'm so thankful for your humility and your willingness just to kind of come and share tangible ways that uh, we can get involved with justice and reconciliation in our community. So let's thank them uh, for sharing this morning. All right, now, yeah, now, let's trade these off here. So, again, I wanted to start with uh, just some practical ways. As you're thinking about this and what this looks like in your own life, your story is not uh, Seth and Jackie's story. You have a different story. You come from a different background. Um, but I think as, as Christians, this just gives us a little bit of a picture for uh, folks in our, in our community who are engaging in the work that God's called us to and using their, uh, their business as a platform to do that. Thank you. Um, so I want to start, um, as we think about just a little bit here, uh, just for a short amount of time, we think about uh, the call to do justice and mercy. Um, I want to um, think about wh what that looks like for us. Uh, I want to think about what that looks like for you and I as individuals, and also what that looks like for us institutionally as a church. And I want to start by um, just mentioning a couple scripture passages that might help us tie some of this together, as we've talked over the last couple of weeks in terms of where do we go from here, right? Where do we go from here? Um, I, I want to start with a passage that's meant a lot to me uh, over the last season of my life, uh, maybe one that you're familiar with and you've heard quoted, but Micah 6, uh, 8 is a passage that calls us to move from a place of thinking about these issues or talking about these issues uh, to actually doing something about this work. And we mentioned this, I think, in the first message, so I want to come back to it here. But the context here for Micah 6 is uh, it's, it's essentially a trial, God has put the people, uh, his people on trial. And all the language here, it's, it's kind of uh, legal language throughout this passage. It's a, a plaintiff, and uh, God, is, God is the plaintiff bringing charges against his people. And the context here is massive economic and political corruption. You can read that through the first five chapters of Micah. 
Uh, you see violence. You see systemic injustice by the powerful against the poor. Um, you see powerful rulers and judges using their, uh, using their advantage to press down uh, the poor. And so God here in this passage says, I, the, the fix here is not going to be uh, getting more religious. It's not going to be doing more religious stuff, just praying or bringing sacrifices or going to Bible studies. He said the fix here is going to be active participation. And so God uh, invites the people to reflect on what they already know to be true. He's saying this is the heart of what it means to be my people, to be in relationship with me. He says to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? He says, you know, you know the right thing to do. And it's interesting here, the language, do justice. That word do is, is a, an artisanal word. It's an architectural word uh, that has roots in kind of uh, construction. Essentially, it's, it's the combination of skill and hard work. You're going to have to make this happen. This is not something that's going to happen organically. We like to talk about things being organic, right? Justice doesn't happen organically. It's going to require intentionality and sweat and actually skill. There are skills that must be acquired to do the work of justice. And, and so active participation is a piece of this. He says it must come from the heart. You must love mercy, right? To love mercy is to love this word. This word mercy is the word hesed, which in the Hebrew is the word for God's steadfast love and mercy, right? It's the covenant loyalty of God to his people. You must be a lover of God and a lover of people. You must understand love if you're going to do the work of mercy. And it's not just going to be something that you do behaviorally, but something that flows from an authentic place within you. If we're going to deconstruct a system of injustice, both in the church and outside the church, we must start by loving mercy and doing justice, building a new way of life. Another passage that comes to mind here is Job chapter 29, verse 14. Job uh, says this, I, I put on righteousness. So these are our two words for justice in the Old Testament. This brings together both of them in one passage. I put on righteousness, which in some contexts has the same root as justice. It could actually be translated justice. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Other translations say like a garment. The idea here is that the work of justice and righteousness is both a status and a practice, right? To be righteous is to be one who knows the righteous one, God himself, but it's also to do justice. And these things are inseparable in the Old Testament. It's gonna, what he's saying is, this is going to require, just like you going to pick out the outfit that you wore this morning, okay? You don't just throw, like some of you, you just like throw clothes on, right? You've seen that commercial where the guy's just like rubbing the the like wrinkles out of his shirt. Okay, some of you do that. But like most of us, you're, you're thinking it requires conscious, intentional planning and reflection. It's a way of seeing the world, not just random acts of kindness. It is an ongoing work of thinking through the implications of justice in every area of your life. And it's something you must wear. It is a reality, not just a behavior. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, says it like this. Doing justice, then, requires constant, sustained reflection and circumspection. If you're a Christian and you refrain from committing adultery or using profanity or missing church, but you don't do the hard work of thinking through how to do justice in every area of your life, you are failing to live justly and righteously. 
the last passage uh, that I want to share before we get into uh, some of the application is Luke chapter 4. And we started here, and so I want to bring us back here. Jesus, in the first sermon, I guess he preaches in his public ministry, Luke chapter 4, in the temple, quoting Isaiah, says, this is what I've come to do. This is the kingdom of God. This is the work that I've come to do. So Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to do what Jesus did, to be with him and know that he's with us as we pursue this work, and to become like him, to have the kind of character that that Jesus had. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to do and to be this with Jesus. This is what he spent his life doing. This is what we read about in the rest of the Gospels. And I want to point out the importance here of the role of the Holy Spirit in this. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We cannot do this work without the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture this, right? We can't do this in our own strength. To do that is to be like the three-year-old, and I've had these uh, before. I have older kids now, but the three-year-old who tries to clean up their, their, uh, their mess. You know, they, they spill pudding or something on the table, yogurt on the table, and they're like, Mama, watch me clean it up, and they just make it worse. Like, they push it down into the material, they spread it out, and it's a sticky mess. That's what happens when we try to do this in our own strength. We must allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. We must allow the Holy Spirit to disrupt us convict us, change us. That's what Jesus said. When the Spirit comes, he will convict you concerning righteousness, which is also the same root as the word justice. And that's what we see throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit disrupting the early community, right? In Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost. In Acts chapter 6, by appointing diverse leadership in the early church with the deacons. In Acts chapter 9, and converting Paul and, and bringing Ananias along to welcome Paul into a community. In Acts chapter 10, with Cornelius, and he drops the, the blanket full of, uh, of pork and essentially says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Right? All throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is disrupting a monocultural community and saying, my vision is much bigger for this work. And so we must as well trust the role of the Holy Spirit as we seek to do this work. So what does it look like for us to do this practically? Um, I want to talk about that in two ways, and I want to spend most of our time on the second, not the first. Um, All of this, by the way, um, on this first section, so what does this look like for you individually? Almost all of this can be found on our website, somaindy.com slash justice. We have a practice guide that is intended to equip you with some of these next steps. So I'm just going to mention these. I'm going to put them up on slides if you want to snap a picture or whatever you can. But this is all on our website in terms of what you do as an individual. Um, we're borrowing this framework from a guy named Jamar Tisby in his book, The Color of Compromise. I think has a really uh, succinct way of saying this. He calls it the arc of justice. And I think it's a really helpful way for us to think about some potential next steps. The first step is Awareness. Awareness. We have to continue to wake up to how we've been discipled, discipled, to think about race and ethnicity and justice and reconciliation. This is not a one-time thing. It's not like you have an awakening and that's it, right? Any of you who are married or in a relationship, you know, there's degrees of awareness. And, uh, and so there starts initially and then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And <clears throat> that's the same thing with, with uh, racial reconciliation and justice. It's an ongoing process 
of deepening awareness. So change your mentors. Not just people that you call acquaintances, but who's actually shaping the way that you think and live. Who are the authors that you read? What are the podcasts that you listen to? Like all of these things. Like who are the people that actually shape your decision making? I find in our church, oftentimes it's kind of the run-of-the-mill evangelical leaders. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love John Piper. I love Matt Chandler. I love Beth Moore, whoever it is. But they tend to be mostly white. What about uh, Duke Kwan? What about uh, Carol and Car- uh, Carl and Karen Ellis? What about Jasmine Holmes or Ekimini Uwan or Judy Wu or Sky Jathani or Thabiti Enyabwile, Eric Mason? Like, we need to change our mentors and recognize there's more out there than what we often think when it comes to who's shaping our perspectives. And as we do that, then we encounter blind spots. We encounter theological blind spots, right? We realize our whole lives have never been in a, a church that has taught through the minor prophets or not spent a lot of time reflecting on the image of God and what it means to be children of God. We encounter personal blind spots, historical blind spots, vocational blind spots. Like you begin to see your vocation, your work in a different way. You look at how few minorities are represented as thought leaders in your industry. If you're in commercial real estate, if you're in technology, right? Like lots of people are saying this, but it's, it's apparent when you look around even Indianapolis that there are huge gaps And these are big blind spots. And so the point is, awareness leads us to a place of lifelong um, repentance. And by repentance, the Bible doesn't mean just saying you're sorry and feeling bad. Repentance in the Bible means confession, agree with God about what's wrong. It means repair. Repair. We, 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 We make amends. It means changing your behavior. Um, forgiveness, prayer, right? These are things that happen when we become more aware. Secondly, uh, relationships. Tisby talks about the importance of building relationships. And this is really hard in Indianapolis, right? Because of sociological, historical patterning and the way that our city is set up, it's really challenging to do this consistently. But I want to encourage you to think about this um, on a couple different levels. Think networks over individual relationships, Every piece of sociological research on uh, the multicultural church tells us it's not individual relationships, but networks of relationships that transform our perspective. Because what happens is sometimes white people will develop a cross-cultural friendship, and then what can happen is you can say, well, I know a black person. I know an Asian person. And they think like I do. And it actually shows that that can actually entrench your defenses if you don't have overlapping networks of relationships, and particularly networks where you're putting yourself under the leadership of people of color, not controlling the power structures. That's what we see often in our school systems, right? As we have school systems that are quote-unquote diverse from a, a student population standpoint, but if you look at the leadership of those institutions, they're still predominantly white. That's a problem. Many of us have never been in spaces where we've had to be the minority, where we've had to be under the leadership of somebody from a different ethnic background than our own. It's humbling. Share stories and meals, cross-cultural interactions in diverse settings like restaurants, like parks. We see this in our neighborhood, right? There's good parks and there's bad parks. What would it look like for you to take your family to some of the quote-unquote bad parks and see that they're actually fine parks. Um, events in our city, one, one that many in our church have been going to over the past couple years, the Poets in Autumn, right? Uh, a spoken word event that's national, right? And you show up there, if you're white, you will be a minority, and it'll be a great experience for you. 
So these are things that, uh, opportunities that we have to build networks of relationships. And then finally, commitment, active participation. Serving and donating to organizations that advocate for racial justice and reconciliation. We've given you some examples here in our own, in our own city. And be an engaged citizen, right? <clears throat> Locally first. Everybody freaks out every four years about national elections. What about your neighborhood association? What about your school board? What about city council? What about trade and industry guilds? We also have Be the Bridge groups that are starting up here uh, in just a few short weeks. We're going to be gathering together as a church and talking through uh, issues uh, of race and reconciliation and justice. And I want to encourage you on our website, go and sign up. I'd love to see those full of uh, Midtown folks engaging and continuing this conversation, even if it means you have to step out of your missional community for a season, or it means that maybe your whole missional community goes together. We really feel like these are that important that you would take time to enter into these spaces and be a learner. Uh, and then sharing your social capital, recognizing that all of us have a certain amount of social capital or social networks that could be used and redirected uh, for the good of others. And so we don't ignore the power that we have the social capital we have out of shame, we say, no, I've been given this by God. How can I redirect this for the good of other people? These are some examples of ways that, you, and again, there's many, many ways, but these are some examples of what that looks like individually. I want to spend the rest of our time, though, talking about institutionally. What does it look like for us to move forward uh, in this area, and where are we going as a church? That's a question that we get all the time. We got it yesterday at Soma DNA. Okay, where is Soma with this as a church? Uh, because many of you only experience Soma here, and we have three churches across the city. Where are we as a church? Where have we been, and where are we going? And so I want to talk about what I think is the biggest hurdle to us doing that. And, uh, and I want to do it through an analogy of uh, my own family. The first year that Emily and I were married, 15 years ago, 2004, we moved from uh, basically enjoying all the things we shared in common, which is otherwise known as dating, um, to facing how differently we approach the practical things of building a life together. From how we approach the Christmas holiday, which for Emily meant 15 family events, and me meant like zero family events. We just kind of sit on the couch and ignore each other while we're watching TV, and we call that Christmas, okay? Uh, to how we ate family meals. I mean, in Emily's house, everybody waits till all the cousins and all the grandparents and everybody are there. Nobody touches anything. Like, it's a crime. You have your hand chopped off if you touch food before everybody's there. It's a tribal mentality. In my family, all bets are off. It's whenever you get there, you eat. And my wife would be highly offended because we would show up and everybody would have already eaten. And that's just how things are done at my house. Um, how we thought about family vacations. Again, they travel as a herd, right? And everybody travels together, which is so inefficient. <laughs> it takes forever, right? Because ah, somebody's got to go to the bathroom. We, get, we have like 10 kids under the age of five traveling. We have grandparents that are traveling. People with tiny tanks, so to speak, are traveling together. My family's just like, we'll see you down there. Every man for himself. Hope you make it. And what we begin to realize is that we both had default patterns that we had learned that were just normal for us. And my wife would even say, she'll be here next service to validate this, that was actually not just normal, but the right way to do things in her family. There's a right way to do things. There's a wrong way to do things. This is the right way, just so you know. And we learned that we each had a personal culture 
that we brought with us into our marriage that had to be acknowledged in order to build a new life together, that honored the best of both of our cultural backgrounds while also allowing to forge a shared future together. See, from our earliest experiences in childhood, cognitive psychologists and just experience teaches us that our brains are wired in such a way to conserve energy by seeking patterns and organizing these patterns. And even the way that the neurons fire, there's an old saying that neurons that fire together wire together. Like our brains are wired this way to organize and categorize um, our experiences into symbolic representations called mental models or mental representations. This actually helps you adapt and survive. Imagine if every time you encountered a new situation, your brain had to like build that from the ground up and make sense of it, right? You, it would be exhausting. You couldn't live that way. It's a survival thing. So it's natural. And most of this happens unconsciously, or what we might call implicitly. So let me just do this uh, experiment real fast with you. Just encourage you to engage for a second. What comes to mind when you hear the word parents? Don't shout it out, but just think. For all of us, that's so different. What comes to mind when you think of home? Just like, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? For some of you, it's abuse. For some of you, it's absence. For some of you, it's full of warm memories. Two parents. What comes to your mind when you think of neighborhood? Good neighborhood. Bad neighborhood. What comes to your mind when you think of the word car? Nice car, not so nice car. Vacation, what it means to feel safe. What's dangerous? Right, my point is, all of us have these implicit memories that come from our earliest relationships and the way that our brains are wired, the way that we are wired in our personalities, and they form our normal or default patterns for relationships and are often overseen and passed down generationally through family systems. Now, what happens with us as individuals and families also happens at a societal level with cultures and religious groups. Go back to the book of Galatians. Remember the first sermon that we preached in this? Jewish culture, the Judaizers had taken Jewish culture, by that culture I mean the norms, the values, and the practices around things like food and status and power. And they had elevated those as normal. This is normal. And when we take something and make it normal, then everything else is defined in proximity to normal. Everything else and everyone else was judged as inferior in relationship to it and therefore must assimilate or be excluded and marginalized. What they made, and here's the thing we have to understand, what Paul was calling out, what they made a litmus test of being a good Christian was actually cultural, not biblical. Cultural, not biblical. But it's hard for us to see what's cultural because it's the air that we breathe. It's just normal. And everything else is just weird. I would argue that in the same way, since our inception as a country, white culture in both society and the church has become the norm by which we operate and then evaluate other cultures. Right? That's why some of us call, like we can't pronounce certain names and we might say, well, that's a weird name. 
weird to you, not weird to the rest of the world, right? We do this in the church, and here's the thing. We don't even call it a culture in the church. We're not even aware that we have a culture, some of us. We're not aware that we have a culture in the church. It's just the right way to do things. It's the most efficient way to do things. It's the most effective way to do things. It's the excellent way of doing things or the obvious way of doing things. So let me just go back to our thought experiment here. What comes to mind, the first thing that comes to mind when I say to you, worship? For some of us, it means folding our hands and singing hymns. That's worship, written by lots of European people. For others of you, it's like, no, Hillsong, Bethel, whatever, you know, like this expressive. For some, it's dancing, right? And it's very embodied, and it's repetition like the Psalms, which is a way that you taught theology to people who uh, didn't have access to theology. My point is, we have different mental models. When I say kids' ministry, what comes to mind? Highly programmed for some of us. If you come uh, from places outside the U.S., it usually means everybody together, right, worshiping together, and it's really loud because uh, I've been in Hispanic countries, Latino countries, uh, where uh, mamas don't take their kids and drop them off to strangers. It's not a cultural thing. Uh, what, what about art? What comes to your mind when you think about good art? What comes to your mind when you think about preaching or authentic community or the appropriate length for a service? Some of you think Soma, you're like agonizing because it's 90 minutes at Soma and you're already checking your watches right now like, how is he going to land the plane? I've seen you. You're staring at your watch. That's a cultural way to think about time. The first time I ever went to an African-American church was in college. A friend and I, an African-American girl, we swapped churches. She came to my church. I came to her church. It was about four or five hours. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Like I didn't have a category for it. And it was, I mean, people were dancing. It was Mother's Day, which in the African-American church is the, like, the, one of the highest days, an opportunity to honor the dignity of mothers. What comes to mind when you think about leadership? What is good leadership? I mean, these are all examples of ways that we have mental models. They're kind of like zombies, right, that we bring with us, but we, we kind of keep pressed to the side. You don't talk about them. They're just assumed. Of course, everybody sees the world this way. But of course, everybody doesn't see the world that way. I was thinking um, this week in preparing for this message about the future of our church. And I was thinking, what would it look like for Soma on a Sunday morning, and, and obviously in our community as well, to look more like the Keystone Kroger or the Glendale Target on a Friday night? You ever shopped at Target on Friday night right here? You ever go to the, tar the, key the Kroger right here on Keystone? It does not look like this. It just doesn't. People from every cultural background, I mean, it is our community. Man, I want to look more like that. What is keeping us from looking more like that? From living more like that? Where these are not just people that we see, but people that we know, they're our neighbors, they're our friends. Our kids go to school together. We do life together. I believe that in order to live into that vision, we must continue. And I'm not going to say start because I think we've been doing it, but we must continue to deconstruct, 
the implicit normalization of white culture in our church. The implicit normalization of white culture in order to rebuild a more just, reconciled church family. Right? It's not just tearing it down for the sake of tearing it down. It's tearing it down to build something new. Something that looks more like Revelation chapter 7. So what, what I don't mean by this is deconstructing or shaming white people. That's not the goal. Um, I'm talking about becoming more aware of the ways that we do church that implicitly, I mean unconsciously, we just don't think about them, normalize, prioritize, and I would argue even idolize a particular culture and tradition over another in a way that does not allow voices and people feeling at home in this church. It's not that anyone's engaging in a conspiracy. We are just reproducing what we know. And that's the problem. I do it. Our elders do it. We all do it in different ways. I mean, this has so much been the journey that I've been on over the past, you know, decade of my life. I grew up in a predominantly white, middle-class bubble in Louisville, Kentucky. I did not know that I even had a culture until I was in my 20s. I went to a private Christian school that whitewashed history and didn't even teach me about a lot of things that I should have known about the history of our country and what it meant to be a a white man in today's world. Uh, I I played college basketball for a year at Spalding University in the inner city of Louisville and for the first time began to encounter a, a different culture than my own at a pretty heavy pace. I was a minority on this team. Then I transferred to the University of Kentucky and got involved in uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And that ministry on the UK's campus was predominantly white, and I joined a predominantly white church. And so I'm back into the space of whiteness. I graduated a predominantly white seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, without any exposure to historic issues of injustice in our country, without even reading a book by a minority thought leader. I moved to South Florida in 2009, and just my world got turned upside down. I had a, an, a cultural awakening. I was a part of a multicultural church on our church staff. One of my best friends was Cuban, and one of my other best friends was African-American. And we would have near fistfights on our staff retreats over whether or not we could say the Pledge of Allegiance or uh, sing the national anthem. George's family was from Cuba. They had swam the channel, touched land to get amnesty. He was a second-generation gen- immigrant. Uh, Eric's family, well, uh, his grandmother was a slave. And I'm a white kid from Kentucky. Learning what it looks like to be a part of a multicultural reality. We adopt a biracial daughter. We move to Indianapolis. And, and this has been an ongoing process of awakening through friendships, through networks, right? Like the school that we go to is 50% white, 50% black. It's been a great place to learn and be humbled in terms of racial dynamics and understanding my own implicit uh, biases. Uh, friendships with uh, Jamal Smith, a guy who used to be the Civil Rights Commission leader for the state of Indiana, uh, and is a good friend, serving under him as he started a basketball team here in the city with our family and our kids, um, has been one of the great learning experiences of my life. Phil Edwards, one of our former pastors here at SOMA, we hired him on a couple years ago. Phil's work and what he has done here in laying this foundation for our church and our friendship has taught me so much about uh, uh, the ways that I just normalize these things in the ways that still has to change. And that's in many ways where we find ourselves as a church right now. 
Recently, we had a gathering of minority leaders in our church at one of our elders' homes, and we just said, hey, what's your experience right now at Soma? How do you experience this church? And it was, it was humbling. It was, it was sad to hear the pain, to hear people talk about it. And it, and it, was, it was not like big things. It was just a million small ways that they feel excluded. And we, like it, this is us. This is our family. This is our church, like right now. From the ways that people don't engage with them or avoid conversation to the lack of just basic eye contact. I mean, it's a million small things. And reasons why they don't feel at home and it's hard for them to call Soma home. So I just want us to think about that, to think about what are some of the norms? I've listed some things on the screen. What are some of the norms that might need to be reevaluated or discarded or even repented of because they perpetuate racial segregation? They normalize white culture at the expense of other cultures. Recently, a friend of mine, Jamal Williams, came in. He's an African-American pastor in Louisville. We're on the board together of Sojourn Network. And he came in to do a little bit of an audit and consulting with our staff around racial reconciliation. And we invited some members from our community to come and listen to Jamal. And he was talking about, um, like, community life. And one of the things he, he mentioned, so missional communities. We built a church around missional communities. We talk about being neighborhood-based. But think about our context in Indy. How could being neighborhood-based perpetuate segregation? It depends on how you find na- define neighborhood. Is it the neighborhood right around the coffee shops that we like? Or is it truly all of our neighborhood? Right? Like he was, he was pointing out the fact that even good intended neighborhood strategies can be monocultural and exclusive by their very nature. He says an African American, for instance, in his opinion, is not going to show up in a predominantly white space. If you look at our missional communities, they are 99% white at Midtown. No African-American, he says, is going to show up in that space without a lot of courage and a feeling of safety because it is re-traumatizing every time they do. He actually said, one of the things I would consider for you guys is thinking of your Sunday gathering as your outreach, not your missional communities. He said, for a minority, Sunday morning is an opportunity for them to come, hear the word preached, leave with their heart pounding out of their chest. He said, Sunday morning is outreach, not just missional communities. You want to be a missional church, he says to minorities, think about your Sunday gathering. Talk about mind blown. So my point is, we need to look at different areas of our church and say, how are we monocultural? How are we unintentionally excluding other ethnicities and races from being meaningfully committed here and feeling safe and feeling like this can become their church? So I listed some next steps here for us, things that we're currently doing as we continue this work, we're listening, right? We're doing a health survey again this fall, um, and we're asking questions of our community, trying to get a better sense. Focus groups, we've done these, and we'll continue to do more of these, trying to learn where are we missing it, where are the blind spots. We want to continue to see our leadership change. We have had African Americans and minorities on our staff at our pastoral table. Uh, We want to continue to do that. We have elder candidates right now that reflect that reality. We have deacons that reflect that reality. Uh, We have an advisor team that's beginning to reflect that reality. Um, Staffing, right? We have a culture of internal staff hiring because we're so relational. But we have to recognize if we're already a predominantly white institution, then hiring internally is going to perpetuate the same problems on staff that we have now. So we're going to have to look outside and do that 
differently. And then our Sunday gatherings, we're looking at that and saying, okay, how can we be strategic and intentional with our next couple of hires, and how do we begin to shift some of the culture here on Sunday morning so that it's more inclusive to people from other ethnicities. And as, as Brian Loritz says, no ethnicity has home team advantage. So my point in all of this is, again, not to shame us, but to say, we must adapt. We must continue to change. Right? It's, it's, it's all good and well to say, we want to be a more diverse church until it begins to affect our comfort until it begins to affect my security and my preferences and the things that are implicit to me when I think about church. We must adapt, not our neighborhood. Like, we must adapt. Our neighborhood does not adapt to us. And this means we give up our comfort and our preferences and our familiarities. One example of this is the way that I think we've changed over the past couple years to be more inclusive generationally, right? It used to be really hard for people over the age of 35 to come to SOMA. Because they, they saw us as a millennial church, and look around, it's still predominantly millennial, but we have more gray hair in this room than we've ever had, thank you Jesus. We've been praying about this. That is a cultural reality too. Generational things are cultural realities too. So it meant we had to think about uh, what kind of songs we were singing and preaching and all these different areas, and praise God, and he said I could use his name, but I, 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 uh, Mike Evans uh, used this great analogy recently uh, on our retreat, we had our leaders retreat, and we were kind of talking about it beforehand, and, and Mike asked me this question. We had a, a gathering of all the old people in Soma, which is about eight of us, right? And we, we just said, hey, just how's your experience going? What are you experiencing in Soma? And Mike said, hey, uh, this might be a first, but I, I, we are bringing our CPAPs on the leaders retreat. Do you even know what a CPAP is? And what are you going to do about it? We're like, we're going to give you your own room, Mike. You're not going to be in the dorms with the rest of us. That's an example of change, right? Like a change for us is like... We now have to think about CPAPs, and we didn't have to before. Now we laugh, but like, what's the racial ethnic equivalent of CPAPs? I don't know. But we better listen and pay attention, right? We better be on the lookout for those kinds of realities. And we better root out any remaining vestiges of the normalization of white culture so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to rebuild us into a more true reflection of the kingdom of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what he wants to do among us. My prayer is that you would join us in this work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...